The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. How are you today? All right, we're going to have to get some energy in this room, all right? Go ahead and take your copy of Scripture and turn to the book of Malachi. We are beginning a new study today here in the book of Malachi, or as the old seminary joke goes, the Italian prophet Malachi. So, um, but we are going to begin that study today. It should take us into the holiday season, and uh, then we'll take a little time in between the study of Malachi and our beginning of the book of John to look at some intertestamental writings. And the reason we're doing that is because to see, I want you to see the flow. It's the last book of the Old Testament. There was a period of about a 400 years that passes between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's a lot of writings that happen during that time that really give us a mindset of, of that transition from what God said in the Old Testament to what he's doing in the New Testament. And the reason it's important to understand is if you don't see it, you missed that there was actually a huge expectation that a Messiah was coming when Jesus came. And those intertestamental period writings really point to how they begin to shift their thinking about the law and shift their thinking about what God had done in the Old Testament and what Israel had done and what God was going to do moving into the New Testament. So as we enter into the book of John, we want to kind of prepare ourselves, lay that foundation, and then we'll jump into that there towards the end of January. Now, um, before we jump into this, I want to wish you all a happy new year. And if you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, this year has flown by, uh, it's not actually our new year in the sense that we celebrate as Americans on January 1st, but this is the beginning of the Jewish new year. This is called Rosh Hashanah. So happy Rosh Hashanah to you. Um, we celebrate this over a couple of days. Now, I find it interesting. Again, I wish I could take credit for planning these things, but I don't. It just so happens that when we said we're going to start the book of Malachi, it also happened to be the very beginning of Rosh Hashanah and the beginning of the fall feast. So I want to take a moment because today we're looking at Malachi 1 1. All right. But what I want to do is I want to situate it in the whole idea of this Jewish holiday that is being celebrated at the same time that we are beginning this new book. And I find it very fitting. And almost providential, that God is uh, engaging us in this warning from Malachi, because really the Feast of Trumpets is also about this warning. Now, if you have not been at Marcel for a while, then just to give you um, a, a overview, there are seven feasts that are listed in Leviticus chapter 23. These were celebrated by the Jewish people, by the Hebrew people, Jewish people for centuries, for millennia. And they all cycled through every year. And so God would take them through this journey. Uh, and, and really, when he brought them out of Egypt, he gave them a new beginning. So even though they call Rosh Hashanah the, the beginning of the year, um, for them, when they came out of Egypt, Passover was the new beginning for them. And so that's really kind of in, in, in the in the context of understanding what God is doing. That's the beginning. But this was kind of like the beginning of their civil year, if you will. But the, the thing that we have there is the beginning begins with Passover, unleavened bread. Then you have the Feast of First Fruits. Then after that, you have Pentecost. And then there's this time period that nothing is really going on. And then the fall feasts begin. The fall feasts begin with Rosh Hashanah. That leads to the Day of Atonement. And it caps off with the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there are those seven feasts. Now, what's amazing is when you begin to understand biblical prophecy, when you begin to understand spiritual maturity, 
um, there are stories within stories and seeing those things uh, evolve, those one leading to the other and how it impacts us and what God was doing with his own people. So I don't have time to go through all of that. We do have some resources for that if you're interested. I think some of them are actually available on the website if you want to get caught up on that. But today begins Rosh Hashanah, which is the fall feast. It's the beginning of the fall feast. And just to give you an idea of, of what is behind it, the Feast of Trumpets is the name for Rosh Hashanah. Uh, it, it's the only feast of all of them that occurs on what we would call a new moon phase. So to spread the word, they would light fires. And you could see these fires from hilltop to hilltop in the ancient days. Uh, and that's the way they would let everyone know because it took two witnesses to say, is this the new moon? Is this the new moon? Yes, this is the new moon. And when they would do that, they would start lighting fires to let them know the feast had begun. Well, they also extended it for another day because as they would spread the word, some people wouldn't get the word until late into the day. So this tradition developed that it was two days long. Now, they don't think of it as two days. They think of it as one day that lasts for, you know, in our terms, 48 hours. It's one long extended day. So they celebrated over that time. Now, Rosh Hashanah is celebrated because it is a refreshment. It is this, this introspection of expectation. There's something new that God is doing. God is coming. God is a judge. God is holy. Therefore, he calls us to be holy. And so there's this, this um, theme of warning uh, on Rosh Hashanah. Matter of fact, if you don't know, it's called the Feast of Trumpets. The trumpet is called a shofar. Uh, at least one of them is. There's different kinds of trumpets that they would use. The one's made out of a ram's horn, which is a smaller one. There are some others that you see that are the spiraling kind that they, they hold out here. There are several different kinds of shofars and trumpets that they would use during this, but a lot of them have meanings within it because they would blow these, tr these trumpets during the Feast of Trumpets. They would blow the trumpets a hundred times. So the name Yom Teruah, is literally the day of blowing of the trumpets. And they would blow the trumpets in, in a very symbolic fashion, very emblematic of what the different blast would represent. Uh, the first one is called tekiah, and it was this really long blast. It would be like, doo -doo, you know, not, not real short, not super long, but that was called the tekiah. The next, next one was called the Shevarim. And the Shevarim is three short blasts. It'd be like, hurt, hurt, hurt. Sounds like a warning, doesn't it? I mean, almost like if your fire alarm goes off, you would think of that kind of sound that's going. And it does represent alarm. Uh, teruah is nine staccato blasts. It's like, doo -doo 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 you know, real short, but real quick and real close together. Now, the last trumpet that's blown on the Feast of Trumpets is one great, very long, very mournful sound. And it's called the last trump. It's actually called Takia Gadola, and it's called the, that's a Hebrew for the great shofar. And it's one that would go, at the very end, they would just go up really high. But it would, they would blast as long as they could with that one. So you get the idea of each one of them. Well, they all represent different things. We're not going to be able to go into that. But one of them is these warnings. These warnings, and, and a lot, oftentimes throughout their history, these shofars were used to alert people, even not on the day of, of, of the Feast of Trumpets, even on a normal day when an enemy was attacking. They would use these trumpets to sound the alarms. 
Um, they would use the trumpets to call people together in a congregation for a sacred assembly. So they were used for multiple things, and all of those relate to what they celebrate on Rosh Hashanah. So calling the congregation together, the journey of the camp, calling the leaders to camp, blowing of alarms, a call to war, a call to repent. So trumpets remind us, again, that God is sovereign because they would use trumpets at the coronation of a king as well. So it reminds us that God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign king of the universe. And, and there was this reading that they will also do on Rosh Hashanah, and it was the reading of the binding of Isaac. And the binding of Isaac is that story where Abraham has been called to sacrifice his son. So he goes up on Mount Moriah and he is willing to give the only son that he has because God has called him to do that. Now we know how the story goes. God wanted, God was testing Abraham's faith. He was showing him that he has grown in his faith and his trust in God. But that binding, of, I mean, you imagine how difficult that was. Binding your only son, thinking that this may be the last time, but somehow God's going to come through. Somehow God's either going to intervene or he's going to raise this kid from the dead. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust fully in what God is going to do. So they would read that story as well, the binding of Isaac. Now, again, they would also celebrate, this is their new year. And with new year, just like we do, they would also make new year's resolutions. Now, typically ours are related to ourselves, like our, our looks, if you think about it. Uh, we're going to work out more. We're going to stop eating certain things for at least an extended period of time. We're going to do all these things. But when the Jewish people come to their day of, of a new year, they begin to look inside themselves. They're not looking on the outside. They want to look on the inside. They look deep inside and say, have I offended God? Have I lived the kind of life that I strive to live this past year? They would even call together people to examine them and say, I want you to be honest with me. What did you see this past year in me that I should be ashamed of, that I should repent of? Now, we don't celebrate that very often anymore, do we? Uh, rarely do we have those kinds of friends that we want to open up to and we want them to open up to us and we give them that kind of privilege, that kind of permission to be transparent, to say, tell me what you see when, when you look deep inside of me. But this all centers around what Rosh Hashanah is all about. And historically, Rosh Hashanah fits into this theme of war. Because you think about when they were exiting out of the wilderness under the leadership now of Joshua, when they went in and defeated the first city, what was the name of that first city? Jericho. Do you remember the very unique way that they defeated that city? It was when they went in and they just marched around for seven days. And then the last day, God said, for the first six days, you don't say anything. On the last day, when you march around, I want you, on the last time, you're going to blow the trumpets and you're going to just keep. And then the walls came tumbling down, right? We know how the song goes. So that, that literally is uh, what they think of as well when they come to Rosh Hashanah. The blowing of the trumpets is this, this call to war. It's this idea that we always know there's an enemy around us. And if we're not aware of our enemy, our enemy has an advantage on us. So we always have to be aware that there are those around us who would seek to deceive us, who would seek to distract us from the things that are real and true and good, which is ultimately as Christians, it's our relationship with God. 
That's the only thing that's real, long-lasting, true, and good. Everything else flows from that relationship. Our relationship with others become real, lasting, and good through our relationship with God. And so it is first and foremost. So if we don't obey that trumpet call, we will eventually become hard of hearing. Now, the reason I want to bring all of this into our study is because oftentimes they would say that the the voice of the prophets is a trumpet call to all of us. In other words, it's oftentimes in the Old Testament that the prophets would begin to speak and people would say they are like a trumpet. They are calling us to war. They are calling us to a solemn assembly. They are warning us of the attack of an enemy. And if you go in every single prophet and you look at their prophecies and you look at the things they were warning the people about, it literally does fit into this whole theme of Rosh Hashanah. They were warning the people, hey, there's an enemy that wants to take you and you're giving into it. You're looking, you're being distracted by what's happening around you. And you've given in to some of these temptations. You've begun to live for this world instead of living for God, the author and king of this world. And so oftentimes those voices are like trumpets calling the people back to what is true and right and good. It is like a a sound to awake them from their spiritual slumber. Their voices were like trumpet calls to alert the people of something in their own life, a warning of danger, a a signal, if you will, that they need to turn and follow after God again. So it may be a trumpet call to assemble and hear the voice of God, or it may be an admonition, or it may be an exhortation, but the enemy was always close at hand. And oftentimes the warning was that if they did not pay attention, if they did not obey, you are going to suffer. So God, every time when we see the prophets come up, there's this reminder, there's always a remnant. And the remnant really is, if you think about it, it is God saving for himself a generation who will be faithful, a generation who is willing to go to war, a generation who says, like the early ones did as they went into the promised land, yes, there are giants in the land, but he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Don't we need a generation like that today? Rosh Hashanah is looking forward to the day of judgment. Remember, Rosh Hashanah happens and then it is the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that comes. It's the high holy day for the Jewish people. So Rosh Hashanah is a readying of yourself, knowing a day of judgment is coming. Therefore, if I know a day of judgment is coming and I'm going to be judged for my actions, then I need to begin to look inside myself and not pretend that that day is not coming. Because if I do that, then all I'm going to do is look at this world. I'm going to try and find as much pleasure and meaning and purpose in this life as I can, even though scripture says that I will never find it. And that's where we get distracted. And that's where our focus is lost in that distraction. And so I really believe that it is providential that God has brought us to the study of Malachi and that we begin it here on the day of Rosh Hashanah, the day of the blowing of the trumpets, because this is about purification. This is about a washing of ourselves. 
And so what I want to do is in the context of what we just said about Rosh Hashanah, what we begin to celebrate today, I want to jump into our study of Malachi. We're only going to look at the first verse today because we really want to set up the theme, the context, the, the underlying foundation before we jump into the text itself and begin to see what he's saying, who he's saying it to, and what's happening to them, and what has happened to them, and what's going to happen to them. Those are all really important before you jump into the actual words and verses of the text. So what I want to do is start as we often do when we start a new book study is using the video from the Bible Project, which is a great resource. Many of you have probably, because you've gotten used to it, you've probably already gone and looked at it from Malachi. Um, but I want to just go ahead and show you. It's about seven minutes long, but it gives you an overview of the whole book and how it's broken down, and it does it very well. So turn your attention to one of the monitors. The book of the prophet Malachi. He lived about a hundred years after the Israelites had returned from their Babylonian exile, and his message was directed to the people who had been living in Jerusalem for some time now. The temple had been rebuilt a while ago, and things were not going well. Just remember the stories from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Israelites first returned from exile, their hopes were high. They would return and rebuild their lives and the temple. All of the great promises of the prophets would come true. The Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom over a unified Israel and over the nations and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting in poverty and injustice. And so in Malachi, we find out just how corrupt this new generation has become. The book's designed as a series of disputes, and most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement. And then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens six times. In the first three disputes, God exposes Israel's corruption, and in the final three disputes, he confronts their corruption. And the overall impression you get from these arguments and disputes is that the exile fundamentally didn't change anything in the people. Israel's hearts are as hard as ever. The first dispute starts when God says that he still loves his covenant people despite their failures. And Israel rudely objects, saying, how have you shown us any love? And so God reminds them of how he graciously chose the family of Jacob, their ancestor, to become the carrier of God's covenant promises, instead of Esau, his brother, and the family that came from him, who eventually came to ruin. Remember the stories from Genesis and the book of Obadiah. And so right from this first dispute, Israel is exposed as suspicious doubting God's love and faithfulness. The second dispute exposes a problem with Israel's second temple. God accuses the people of despising and defiling the temple. And the people fire back, how have we despised you? And so God responds by focusing on the people, how they're bringing shamefully lame offerings of these sick, blemished animals that show that they don't value or honor their God. But it's not just the people, it's the priests too who run the temple. They not only tolerate but participate in these corrupt forms of worship. From top to bottom, God's people have proven faithless. In the third dispute, God accuses the Israelite men of treachery against him and their wives, which of course they deny. And God exposes the toxic combination of idolatry and divorce taking place. You have Israelite men marrying non-Israelite women and then adopting the worship of their wives' ancestral gods into their homes. Remember the story from Nehemiah chapter 13. And so Malachi connects this to a wave of men divorcing their wives for no good reason. And the people are all fine with this. And Malachi says, no, it's a betrayal of your covenant with God. 
And so Malachi transitions into the second set of disputes that confront Israel's rebellion. So the fourth dispute begins with the Israelites accusing God of neglect, saying, where is the God of justice? They see injustice and corruption abounding, and God seems to do nothing. So God responds by saying that he'll send a messenger who will prepare the people for God's personal return in the day of the Lord. He will come like fire to purify his people and to remove idolatry and sexual immorality and injustice so that only the faithful remnant is left to become his people. In the fifth dispute, God calls the people to turn back to him, to which the people say, how can we turn back? And so God confronts their selfishness. He shows how they've stopped offering a tithe of their income to the temple. Now, that word tithe just means one-tenth. It's the amount of their income and produce that the Israelites were to annually donate to support the temple and its priests. The practice is laid out in different parts of the Torah. Now, we know from Malachi and from the book of Nehemiah that the people were neglecting this response. And so the temple was falling into disrepair. And so God confronts them. He says he wants to bless them with abundance, but only if they're going to be faithful. In the final dispute, the people accuse God and say that it's pointless to serve him. They observe wicked, prideful people succeeding in life, and God does nothing. And God's response for the first time in the book is not a speech but rather a short story about the faithful remnant in Israel, people who fear the Lord and they love to get together and talk about how to honor God and serve him. And so God orders that a scroll of remembrance be written for these people so that they can read the scroll and remember God's character and promises. Malachi, he's reflecting here on the divine gift of the scriptures, how they point us to the past to remember what God has done in order to inspire faithfulness and hope for the future which leads to the conclusion of the book. It picks up and develops the imagery of the fourth dispute about the coming day of the Lord, but it develops it further. God says that he's appointed a day of purifying judgment that will consume the wicked from among his people. But what the conclusion adds is the future of the faithful remnant, because for them, the day of the Lord is not a threat. It's a cause for joy. It'll be like the rays of the rising sun that bring healing and life and hope for the future. And so Malachi's disputes come to a close, but there's still a bit more to this book. The final three verses, they're not part of the disputes, and actually they function like a concluding appendix, bringing closure not just to Malachi, but to the whole collection of the Torah and the prophets. So first, the reader is called to remember the law or the Torah of my servant Moses. This recalls the story and the laws of the covenant that you find in the first five books of the Bible. But then we hear this summary of the books of the prophets. I will send the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord, who will restore the hearts of God's people. So this conclusion, it summarizes the Torah and the prophets as a unified story that points to the future. Israel was redeemed by God, and then they betrayed him through their rebellion and hard hearts, breaking the laws of the Torah. But the scriptures anticipate a future day when God's going to send a new prophet, a Moses, a new Elijah, who will restore God's people and heal their hard hearts. Remember all of the promises from Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so this concluding appendix presents the scriptures as a divine gift to read and to ponder and to pray over. They tell the truth about the human condition, about our selfishness and our sin. But they also announce God's promise that one day he would send a messenger and then show up personally to confront evil, to restore his people and bring his healing justice. And it's that future hope that Malachi and the Torah and all of the prophets 
are about. All right, we go home now, right? I mean, they do such a great job. I love the way that you can hear it all at once, all connected together. But we would not do the book service if we did not go verse by verse through it. So I want to continue to kind of lay a foundation for that. Uh, You heard kind of an overview of the book, but let's also lay a foundation, if we will, for understanding where this book fits into what we would call the Old Testament canon. Um, Canon just means uh, accepted books, or it fits the criteria as an inspired book. So when we talk about the canon of scripture, we're talking about the books that were accepted as authoritative and spirit inspired. So when we look at our Old Testament canon, what we see is this story that's told from beginning to end. Now, when we look at it, our English Bible is arranged differently than the Jewish Old Testament. Uh, the Jewish Old Testament actually ends with Second Chronicles. Uh, a lot of people believe the reason they do that because it's not Uh, It doesn't follow a chronological flow, but the reason they do that is because if you know anything about the history of Israel, if you have 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you definitely don't want to end in 2nd Kings, okay, because it is bad and it looks really bad and the kingship is corrupt and everybody's going the wrong way. 2nd Chronicles ends on a positive note and it ends with this expectation or this hopefulness of the kingship of Israel. But in ours, ours is laid out a little bit more, even though it is segmented in sections, it's also laid out a little bit more chronologically. And so Malachi truly is one of the last books written. Some people say Joel was written later, but most people agree that Malachi was the last book that was written before the close of the Old Testament canon. So what, we want, what I want you to understand is how that has all flown as one big story. So go ahead and put that next slide up there. What we have is this, this um, gradation of themes as you go through there. So we have creation, fall, and flood right there at the beginning of Genesis. Then uh, as you move to Genesis chapter 12, moving forward, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. The 12 sons go to Egypt because of the whole story of Joseph and all that thing. And then they become slaves in Egypt. Then Exodus picks up with God rescuing his people from Egypt, just like he promised he would do. So then you have them in Egypt, then you have the Exodus, and then you have them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they go into the promised land. So it picks up in the book of Joshua with them moving into the promised land to take the land that God had promised them. And so Joshua begins that story of the history of them going in and settling in the land. Then we pick up with First and Second Samuel where it begins to tell us about the kingship, uh, first with Saul and then with David, and then ultimately we get into the ruling king of Solomon. Now, during that time, we had a united kingdom. It was all Israel. But when Solomon died, the kingship almost died with him in the sense of they never could uh, find a leader that people would follow. And so what happened was with their focus going off of God, focus on the king, focus on all the paganism that had invaded them, we had a civil war that happened, and then we had a division of Israel. And so there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So we, talk, we call these writings 
um, the divided kingdom. And so this focuses on when there was an Israel and there was a Judah. Now this encompasses a lot of the prophetic writings because many of the prophets, both the, the, the larger major prophets and the smaller minor prophets are writing either to Israel or writing to Judah. And then some of them are writing to both of them. But typically you're gonna find them writing to one section or another. Now remember there were 12 tribes. Israel, the Northern kingdom contained 10 of those tribes and the Southern kingdom of Judah contained two of those tribes. What happened was they so took their focus off of God and they so became so corrupt that God allowed the enemies to come in and to evade him. He told them this was what was going to happen. Many of the prophets said, you're going to go into exile. God's going to allow your enemies to come in because you have turned. And they said, oh no, God would never, ever allow the temple to be torn down. There's no way he would ever allow anyone to invade Jerusalem. Well, that was where they misjudged God. And of course, the Assyrians come in and they destroy Israel. But Judah remained for a while. So all the 10 tribes, the northern tribes were taken into exile. Then it was um, after that, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, he defeated Assyrians. And then he came in and he was the one who ended up destroying Judah and taking uh, those, those tribes into captivity as well. And so that's where we studied in the book of Daniel. That was what we call right there on, on the bottom of that list right there, the exile. So this was while they were not in the land that God had promised them, they had been exiled to Babylon. Then what we know from history is King Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonians, the one that followed him were eventually defeated by the Persians. And Cyrus I was the one who allowed all of the Jews to go back. And so that's the last part of our Old Testament called the post-exile. This is when we get into books like Nehemiah and Ezra, where all of them are coming back. And Zerubbabel was the priest who brought back the first ones who began to rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah talks about the rebuilding of the wall. So they were coming back and settling the land. Okay, so that is the time period right there, post-exile, that Malachi is writing. He is a post-exilic prophet. Say that with me, post-exilic prophet. So in other words, he's coming at the very end. He's coming after they have lost their homeland, spent this time in exile. Now God graciously and mercifully allows them to go back to this land. And now he's beginning to write about the attitudes that he sees in them that they should know better above anyone else because of their long history of knowing God sticks to his word and God is a holy God and God has these expectations and you have to meet these expectations. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is merciful. But his love and his mercy is never at the expense of his holiness and his righteousness. Both of them live in perfect unity. And so over and over again, we see that story and they always misjudge. Now, do you see how pertinent this book is for us and our culture that we live in today? I mean, I, I can't tell you how many blogs you could go right now and look at very famous preachers, teachers who are succumbing to the culture around us. Why? Well, because it is monetarily beneficial for them because they can get a larger following because of their emotions. And then what has happened is they have traded off the truth of God, which is in God's word to say, you know what? God is gracious and he's merciful. And so, you know, I, I, we can accept these things. And I'm telling you, we are about to make these, we've already made these same mistakes 
that Malachi is addressing to this generation. He's saying you above all else should know that God is holy and just and righteous. And yet here are the things that you keep doing. And you're going to hear those stories come at us over and over again as we study this book. Now let's begin by looking at that first verse. There's not a ton of theology there, but there's a little bit, all right? First verse is really an introduction. Look what it says. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now you're thinking, now what in the world are we going to do with that? That's, a, I mean, that's like a one statement. But there is a lot there that we have to understand, and there's more to it than just those words. You, this is the kind of verse that we would typically skip over, but it's very important because it tells us some things about what's happening from that point forward. So let's start with thinking about that time period. So Malachi's arguments are based on this knowledge of the law of Moses. That's the reason we know that he had to come at the same time that Nehemiah is writing because Ezra, it was after the time of Ezra. Ezra was the one after the people began to come back in the promised land, he was the one that had familiarized them back with the scriptures again. He's the one that had the scriptures read out and open because the people had become so unfamiliar with the scriptures. Well, Malachi writes with, with the idea that the audience knows these scriptures. So it had to come after the time of Ezra. So we would say that somewhere around 458 to 445 BC, and there's actually a few little places that it fits best, but more than likely when you look at Nehemiah chapter 13, it seems to fit that Malachi's writings were when uh, Nehemiah actually left and went back to Persia for a little while, and then he came back to find the very things that Malachi is talking about, and he created these reforms to kind of take care of those situations that Malachi had already seen happening amongst the people of Israel. So think about this. After they came back, what they found was Zerubbabel's temple was nothing like Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was glorious. Zerubbabel's temple was a pile of rocks put together the best they could to, to have a makeshift temple. It was not glorious. Israel, I mean, uh, uh, Jerusalem was not glorious. It was not the city that it used to be. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, he completely destroyed, he leveled Jerusalem. He took everything out, it was all gone. So what we find is they come back and they're like, that's not the temple that our fathers had. This is not Jerusalem that our fathers had. So the temple was not what it used to be. The city was not what it used to be. And what Malachi points out is the people also aren't what they used to be. And there is this fork in the road. They can either go the way of their forefathers or they can go a new path and truly follow God and trust him and respect his holiness and his righteousness and his law. Or they can take the path that their forefathers did and it will end in exile and destruction and wrath. So, it took a while for them to eventually get back. But after they got back into the city, they started to experience a little bit of peace. They, they had this moment of revival where they truly did give themselves back to the study of scripture and give themselves back to this recognition of the holiness and righteousness of God and the ceremony that went with the worship of Yahweh. But what happened was this peace and this prosperity that they began to uh, experience again, even though it wasn't quite what it was in the past, it began to distract them as well. 
They weren't starving. They had houses. They had land. They had Jerusalem. It wasn't what it was under Solomon, but at least they had something. The temple wasn't near what it had been, but they had at least the whole thing intact. God had brought them back just like he had prophesied through many of those prophets that he was going to do. However, Now that the nation was rebuilt, a certain set of problems start to arise. And it's interesting because we're not dealing with the same type of problems that some of the prophets beforehand. We're not dealing as much with the paganism that the earlier prophets dealt with. Although there is a degree of that because they were marrying foreign women and then inviting the worship of their deities into their homes. But really what we see in Malachi is he focuses on their worship of Yahweh. He's focused on their internal worship and and the sacrifices that they're bringing and their recognition of the law of God. The problems inside that worship of God, what was happening inside their nation and their worship and their respect and their acknowledgement of God. So when you read Hosea or you read Amos, you see these messages to the people. And a lot of times you can take some of those messages and you can relate them even to nations today. But the book of Malachi is not a book that you can really relate to nations today, it's more of a book that you have to relate to the church today. I really believe that this is a warning to the church. That's the application that we draw from it. So with that being said, we're going to ask some questions as we move through our study. And two fundamental questions we're going to ask as we study each verse is this, is this a correction for us? Do we need to make some kind of correction, understanding who God is and what he expects? And the second one is this, how do we apply the book of Malachi to us today? It would be very easy to go and say, hey, this is what our nation needs to do. But let's be honest, the the nation of America is not the same thing as the nation of Israel. The church is more similar because the church is the called out people. So it's going to be about us and the church and what we believe and what we have to embrace and what we have to repent of. Then, Then hopefully it will transfer to the culture around us. But when we look at this again, it says, look at the verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now let's focus on who the author is here. The author is a guy seemingly by the name of Malachi. Now there's debate on whether this is the guy's actual name or whether it's just a title that was given to him later on as they begin to put together the Old Testament because the name Malachi comes from the Hebrew word Malak, which literally means messenger. It is God's messenger. So his name means God's messenger. So some people say, well, they gave him that title later on. But most people would agree that this was his name, probably given by his parents, that he is God's messenger and he lived to fulfill that name that his parents gave him, which reminds you, you better be careful what you name your kids. All right, so look at this. Malachi, again, the word is Malik. Malik means messenger. And what we find here is most of the time in the Old Testament, the word Malik is translated angel. And there are very few times that the word Malik is actually associated with a human being. There are a couple, but not very many. But here, there is this time, there's one of these times, one of these exceptions, that the word Malik is attributed to a human. And there are four very important Maliks that are mentioned at the very beginning of Malachi. We'll get into that as we begin to study it verse by verse, but just remember there are four different. So what happens is this Malik becomes a theme of Malachi. Malik, this idea of messenger, this idea of a messenger becomes this theme that is interwoven throughout the entire book. The message of God's love for his people is introduced here. Go back to look at the verse again. 
It says the oracle of the word of the Lord. Now, how many of you have a copy of scripture open in front of you that has a different word than the word oracle? Yeah, how many of y'all have the word burden? It has the word burden there. Okay, so burden is probably the best translation of the Hebrew word here. It is the word that means, and the re, there's several reasons for it. I don't want to get into all of them, but here's a way that I think we can understand it. It is a burden that Malachi is carrying because he knows nobody wants to hear what he has to say because he's bringing the bad news that God's going to judge you again after you've just gotten back into this land, after you've just rebuilt all this, the judgment of God's going to come again if you don't straighten up, if you don't begin to recognize the holiness of God and respect the righteousness of God. So he has this burden that he's carrying because he sees the people being distracted by the cultures around them and by their own selfish desires. But not only that, the whole message that he has is a burden as well. It's going to be a burden on the people because they are stiff-necked. They don't want to listen to it. They don't want to hear it. And eventually it becomes a burden that they cannot even bear. And so in spite of God's love for his people, what Malachi points out to us and what many of the prophets point out to us is that he's still going to come and judge the world. That heavy note of judgment was meant to stir up men and women, to stir them up to begin to prepare for that day of judgment that's coming. Because when, when Christ comes, when God comes in any form or fashion, whether it's Old Testament or whether we're talking about the book of Revelation, when God comes, depending on your relationship with him depends on how you view his coming. Because if you are in right relationship with God, then you view his return or his coming in that situation as an advocate for you. But if you've been living your own life, living for yourself and living for the things of this world, then his coming is a judgment on you. And that's what he's warning people, get ready. God is going to come. He's going to come and judge. And depending on how you've lived, that's how you're going to receive that judgment of God. You're either going to be, it's a day that you're looking forward to, or it's a day that you will not be looking forward to. The style of Malachi. What's interesting about this book is that at first it can seem very confusing as you read through it. But the video did a good job of kind of laying out the structure that we find in this book. Some people say that it sounds like a bunch of conversations that are happening, but it's actually not. And here's the best way I can understand of breaking down Malachi to understand it. Malachi is like this courtroom drama. It's this courtroom drama in which God is making accusations against the priests or the people of Judah. And, and what we have is their defense. So it always starts out with God making this accusation. And then they answer with this question that's usually always very disrespectful to God. Like God says, I have loved you and yet you have disrespected me. And their response is, how have you loved us? That's, that's kind of their response. That's what we see over and over again. So it's a, it's, they ignore everything that God's done in the history. And all they focus on is the temple's not what it used to be. The city's not what it used to be. We're not prosperous like we used to be. How in the world have you loved us? And then God will respond and he gets the final word in each one of those. So as we go through this, I believe Malachi, again, is a testament to the church. It is a warning to us today. It's God's indictment against his people that we have to be careful that we don't end up like the ancient Jews in our relationship with God. So look at the structure, for, at the, the structure of this book for a moment. Go ahead to that next slide. 
And we see kind of how it's divided out. Uh, Verses one through five is an introduction where God proves his love to Israel by contrasting it to uh, how he has treated Edom. This goes all the way back to Esau and Jacob. Okay, he says, you are the chosen people. You're the ones that I brought out. I have loved you. Uh, Verse six of chapter one, all the way through verse nine of chapter two, God rebukes the priesthood for their perversion of the ordinances of God's law. Do you think there's any perversion of the ordinances of God's law among the priesthood today? Yeah, you're gonna see a lot of that. And we're gonna talk about that as we go through it. Verses 10 through 16 in chapter two, God rebukes the people for perverting God's ordinance of marriage by marrying unbelieving partners and divorcing their wives. So what was happening in Israel was they were beginning to divorce their Jewish wives because they found the foreign women more attractive and more exciting and more exotic. And so they were literally divorcing their families and embracing these relationships of people who did not believe in Yahweh, of people who had their own gods. And even even so, what they did is they invited these women in, they also allowed them to bring in the worship of their deities into their home. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter two, all the way to verse six of chapter three, God announces that his messenger, his malach, who will prepare the way for his Messiah and as his answer to the people's search for God's justice is laid out and promised and guaranteed. Verse seven of chapter three, all the way through verse 12, God rebukes the people for withholding their tithes and their offerings that were owed to God. And then verse 13 through chapter four, verse six, God predicts the destinies of the wicked and the righteous. So again, he says, you know what? There's a day coming. It's going to be a judgment day. And there's going to be those on my left and those on my right. Does that sound familiar? So over and over again, what we see in Malachi, you're going to see repeated when we go through the book of John. You're going to see it repeated throughout the whole New Testament. This same imagery, the same, because let me tell you something. The, The Old Testament and New Testament are not separate. The Old Testament is central to the New Testament. Remember what God said this? Remember when he said this? Remember when he said that? Remember what happened with the people? Remember in Proverbs? Remember in Psalms? Remember the promise of the prophets? Jesus does it over and over again. So, so the Old Testament is not supplemental to the New Testament. The Old Testament is central to the... The New Testament does not make sense without the Old Testament. That's why we have to spend time in these books that a lot of people just want to disregard and kind of throw off to the side and treat them as like history books or that's the way God used to be or that's the way God used to deal with people. Uh -uh. It is central to understanding the Messiah and the person of Jesus and the responsibility of the church today. Again, go back to verse one. The oracle of the word of the Lord to, who is it? Who's it to? Israel. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Because as I told you that whole history, the one thing we know is Israel doesn't exist anymore in a sense. Like in other words, Israel before this time in the divided kingdom, Israel was the 10 Northern tribes and Judah was called the two Southern tribes. And so Israel was gone and and pretty much lost. And it's not Israel that has come back to the promised land. This is Judah. These are the ones that were exiled from Judah under King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, right? So these are the ones that have come back. So here's this idea that this is what's left of Israel. And so he comes back and he uses this proper name and he's using it intentionally to say, this is, again, God is being faithful to what he promised to Israel. 
But it's also why today, just for a side note, this is why we call the people Jewish people is because Judah was the only one that came back. And so they became known as the Jews from that point forward, whereas before that they were known as the Israelites, and before that they were known as the Hebrew people. Now, a lot of times we use those words interchangeably, but when you use them, you're talking about different time periods. Hebrew was Abraham's time all the way up to Israel. Israelites was that time until the divided kingdom. And then after the exiles, when Judah was the only one that came back, they were referred to as Jews little history note there for you. All right. Let's move on to the next idea. The themes, the themes that we find in the book of Malachi. First of all, we have this, the great king in chapter one, verse 14, will come not only to judge his people, but also to bless and restore them. And so there's similar themes and concerns between Malachi and Nehemiah, a marriage of heathen women, neglect in paying tithes, disregard of the Sabbath, corruption of the priesthood, disregard of the One of the main themes that you find is the majesty of God. And it's going to highlight the fact that God is still in control no matter what men are doing. And so the application that I want to bring to this is bring this in, bringing this back to this idea of Rosh Hashanah. Because in this time of Rosh Hashanah, it is a preparing of the heart knowing a day of judgment is coming. And I think it's very providential, again, that we are beginning this study on Rosh Hashanah because all of us have something that may be distracting us. God is calling us to be very aware of the enemies that surround us, that want to distract us, want to dissuade us, and want to pull us away from our relationship with God and our honor of him. And if we're not careful, what happens is we get won over by these arguments from human wisdom that are not sufficient and not complete. But if we only listen from the perspective of emotion, we can be won over by them very easily. And we can be won that for our church, God is calling us to reflect on what's happening in our own lives, what's happening within our church. And so as we dig into this, the one thing that I want us to be very careful of and be paying attention to is how does this apply to us as a church? Not to study this just as an ancient book, not to study this just as a precursor to the study of John, but saying, what does God have for us? What do we need to repent of? What kind of revival can we have amongst our congregation here to be called back to the truths of God's word? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this awesome and wonderful day, which is your day, the Feast of Trumpets. And Lord, I don't think it's any accident. I think it's by your providence. We've said it over and over again today that, that you have called us to begin this great study that will cause us to look inside of ourselves on this day that you set aside to prepare our hearts and our lives for Day of Atonement that's coming. So Lord, as we study this book, may you turn our eyes to that truth. May you reveal it in our heart and may we embrace your conviction because your conviction brings healing and hope. Lord, you, you don't want us to just be miserable. That's why you gave us your law so that we would know how to live and how to get the most out of life here and how to get the most of our relationship with you. We become miserable when we trade that for the wisdom of humans. And we think that somehow our worth is found here in this life and our pleasure is found here in this life. 
Lord, prepare our hearts and minds on this day of trumpets to hear the trumpet call in our own heart and and to hear the trumpet call for this church, a call to repentance, a call to introspection, and a call to ready ourselves for the coming day of judgment. Lord, because we want to see the day of judgment as a positive. We want to see it as something where you come as our advocate. We want to embrace it because we've embraced your truth. We thank you that you deal with us honestly and openly and transparently, that your word sometimes convicts us to our core and it hurts, but the repentance always brings healing and hope and peace to us. So God, may you do your great work of restoration in these people here, us, your church, through the study of our book of Malachi. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 